Okay, let's take some time in God's Word. Um, this is the fourth message in a, in a four-part series, short series that sort of interrupted our study through the book of Mark. And as Bill mentioned, Derek Overstreet will be here next Sunday, and he'll be re-entering us into the second half of the gospel according to Mark. But this morning, I want to take some time and continue on this theme of, of renewal. It's on my heart. I know it's on some of your heart. I hope, actually, it's on all of your hearts how much we need the Spirit to revive and renew our hearts. We are in a unique season. We've had a rough couple of years. The division and the strife has been stark and flagrant, and it has infected the church. We've felt it. We've been quarantined and isolated. We've been limited. Economies have been shut down. And so just the isolation itself has taken a toll on many of our souls. Now, we always need God's Spirit to revive us, but has there been a time in our lives, in our history, where we don't feel the kind of desperation? It's like, God, we need you to move. God, we need your spirit to come and, and revive us. Hearts are, are growing dull. People are questioning, not just questioning their faith, leaving their faith, looking to other places for, for help. And, and what we're praying for, what this whole short series is about is like stirring our hearts to seek the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and revive us. Renew our hearts. The strategy was to prepare our hearts by looking at four primary elements of renewal. There really are four foundations of the Christian faith. And the idea is we've, we've got to make sure, we've got to constantly be checking, rechecking, looking at, and making sure that we've got these foundations fixed down well, functioning in our hearts. This makes us ready for renewal. This makes us ready for God's Spirit to come. In fact, it tends to open the door to it. We've got to be living out these things. They sound like maybe I've heard this before. These are basics of Christianity, and yet they're so vital in forming and making a, a vibrant church. Without them, we grow cold. We're, we're down to just mere formalism. We go through the routines we lose heart. It becomes dry. But with these, these are the things where the life of the Spirit comes back into the heart of the church. So my hope is that we would grasp and comprehend and live in the good of these four foundations of our faith. We need to get them right. We need to keep them right. We began with justification. I am accepted by God in Christ. I am justified. I have right standing before God in Christ. Christ has made that available to me. Then we moved on to sanctification. I am freed from the power of sin. What Christ has done for me has broken over me a bondage to sin. He's not just forgiven me. He's not just given me a clean slate. He has done a work of sanctification continues to do that work of sanctification that is my freedom 
from the bondage of sin. I have this in Christ. And we went on to being indwelt by the Spirit. If I am in Christ, I am not alone. Jesus left the earth to be at the Father's side to intercede on our behalf, but as he did that, he sent to us his Spirit. We have the very presence of God in us. We're not on this task alone. We are not alone. The Lord is with us. Now, the fourth one this morning, what I want to talk about is that in Christ, we have, you have, I have authority in Christ to fight. I don't know if this one takes you by surprise, but as I was reading through this book that I've referred to several times from Richard Lovelace, when I read this, I thought, oh, I wasn't expecting that. But the more I thought about and the more I looked into this, I realized just how important it is for you and me as Christians to realize where we stand in a sort of cosmic battle and that in Christ we have been given authority to fight. I want to read a verse of Scripture from Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you have a device, Open up to Luke chapter 10. This is a, a couple verses where Jesus introduced to his disciples this idea of this cosmic battle and laid out for, for them, as far as we know, for the first time, the authority that they have in this battle. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The realization is that if and when you and I have made a new friend in Jesus, with that, we've gained a new enemy. We've entered in to a conflict. The Bible teaches us about a devil, about Satan and fallen angels and principalities and powers that refer to an array of evil and malicious spirits that war against God and his people. That is the biblical reality. It is all unseen. And many of us live too much of our lives completely unaware about what we don't see, and yet the Scripture comes in to inform us this is what's going on. You have entered into a cosmic battle by the fact that you are in Christ. Unfortunately, the church all too often takes no notice of this, or even when we do, we find ourselves feeling all too weak and inept for this battle, almost afraid of it. But being in Christ, 
includes the authority and the assurance to fight in this battle. We have been endowed with this in Christ. You, by being in Christ, are equipped to enter into that fight. So we'll lay out the message simply like this. Christ won. We fight. And then we'll talk about the nature of the battle. Christ won. So we fight. We've been endowed with authority to step into this battle because we are in Christ. So if we step back and say, first, Christ won this battle. Let's look at the atonement. What did the atonement, Jesus, his life for ours, his life given on the cross, what did that do for us? He offered himself in our place. He paid for our sins. He set us free from the bondage to sin. He ransomed us, purchased us, gave us new life, made us righteous before God, free from condemnation, satisfying God's holy wrath against sin, sin that was ours, and washed us clean, allowing us to be a room swept clean, room for the Spirit to enter. Now we can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit residing in us. He enlisted us in the book of life, wrote our names there, made us co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of God. That's quite a package deal. And with Jesus as our Savior, He is also our victor. What Jesus did in all of his atoning works includes winning a key, important, significant, cosmic battle. What Jesus did in one sense was come and fight this cosmic battle for the souls of men, and he won it. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Of all the details of what it means to you personally about what Jesus did and purchased for you and for me, included in that as part of that was Jesus coming and fighting a battle and winning. In Colossians chapter 2, this is being talked about after explaining how the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we who were dead in our sins are now made alive. Paul goes on to write, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus came, fought a battle. The story of David and Goliath is extremely helpful to understand this, to really understand what happened with David and Goliath, and you, you might be familiar with the story when the armies of Israel were encamped on one side and the armies of the Philistines on the other. And that great giant, Goliath, stepped out from the Philistine army, came down into the valley, and started declaring to the armies of Israel, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall serve us. 
In other words, this battle is going to be decided by two representatives who are going to stand in and they're going to fight one-on-one, winner-take-all. Whoever wins that fight between Goliath and whoever chooses to fight Goliath, that will determine the overall outcome of this battle. And we know the story. David, seemingly young boy at the time, no armor, no sword, defeated the giant with a sling and a stone, went down to that giant's body lying on the ground dead, took his own sword, took off his head, and defeated Goliath. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. In other words, it was a representative battle. Each army sent their man into the fight, and the winner of that battle determined the entire battle. That story is really intended and needs to inform us and recognize that what Christ did was he stepped into that battle as a representative for us. Jesus is the David in the story of David and Goliath. And none of this is merely theoretical because Jesus came, he physically fought the temptations of the enemy, he physically died, was physically raised from the dead, and all the spiritual realities are now being told to us about all the cosmic forces and what they suffered in the actual defeat that took place when Christ won that battle. Christ won. He fought first, he fought for us, and he won. This is the beginning. Don't fight until you know first Christ won. That's what positioned us. So point number two, so we enter the fight. Christ won, so we enter the fight. The army followed David. David goes down, defeats the giant, and then... The armies of Israel are ready to enter into the fight. They rush in to fight the battle, the battle that in a sense has already been won, and yet they still have to carry out the reality of the fight. So in other words, the battle, the outcome of the battle has been determined by the two that fought first, but carrying out the reality of the battle is still to come. It didn't mean that the battle was not real. It didn't mean that it was impossible for any Israelite soldier to suffer any harm. They still had to go in and and kill and plunder and defeat. But now they were coming in with full assurance, full faith, full confidence, full authority. They had They had been given authority because of the outcome of the first fight. They had authority to step into that battle and win and take.
if you can put yourself in the place of either army, and that's where you and I are in the story. Okay, so don't mean to burst your bubble. You're not David. You're not David in the story. You know, you're not looking for five stones. You're not going to defeat your giant. You don't have the capacity to defeat the giant. It's like, don't misread the story. It is a Christ-centered book. It is about Jesus. So don't read the story of David thinking, I want to be David. You, you, you can't be David. You get to be one of the soldiers either for Israel or the Philistines. So if you're a Christian, you end up being your place in the story where you see your picture in the group photo is you and the armies of Israel. That's where you and I are. And Jesus is David, and Jesus went ahead of us, and he fought the battle, and he won the battle. He defeated the strong man. He defeated the giant. He took down the, the captain, the champion of the enemy, cut off his head, and now it's our turn to rush in behind him and fight this battle. Because Jesus won, we're equipped to fight this battle. Because Jesus won, we've been endowed with the authority to fight against this enemy. So in one sense, the victory is already won, in one sense, the outcome, we already know, but that doesn't mean the fight doesn't still exist and need to be carried out. And that's where we are, the church, in this day and hour, following our champion who already won, and we press in to this fight. But filled with confidence, filled with courage, filled with hope, because a decision has already been had you can put yourself in the place of the philistines and the fear and the trepidation oh we lost and here they come to take us down to kill us to take the spoil you can get it yourself into the story and you can imagine the confidence and the joy before david defeated the giant it said the the, the man of israel the soldiers were, were fearful. They didn't know what to do. Who's going to be our champion? Who dares go? This guy is huge. Who's going to fight this battle for us? Nobody felt up for the task. And the giant taunted them, and they felt fearful, and they were trembling. They thought their days were numbered. Surely, if somebody does dare go out there, that giant's going to kill him, and it's over, and we're lost. And yet a champion did come. God provided that champion. Christ won, so we fight. So let's understand the battle. Point number three, and this is crucial, know, know the enemy. It's interesting to think and study what does the Bible teach us about Satan, the devil, our adversary, the, the, the enemy that we are pitted against the one who we understand began as the proud one who challenged God's authority, who challenged God's throne, who wanted to usurp God and take his seat there, has resorted to a, a crafty one always hiding behind the curtain. Jonathan Edwards wrote that it's the policy of the devil to persuade us that there is no devil. 
the one who is the most proud, stood up against God to take God's throne, to put himself in that high position, has now taken on such a modesty that so much of the church exists today almost unaware of his existence. C.S. Lewis laid out the two mistakes. It was fun to pull up screw tape letters off the shelf again and read a few chapters. You need to just keep that book handy, keep your, keep your mind tuned in to what the adversary is like and the battle is like, and he sort of introduced that book. There's the two mistakes. We can make too much or too little of the devil. We can err on either side. The church seems to have found some kind of happy medium between affirming his existence and yet paying little or no attention to him. A quote from Loveless, many evangelicals are content to affirm that the devil is indeed defeated, shrinking from the notion that Christians might actually run into him in actual combat situations and advising that the wisest course is to keep one's attention on Christ and let God take care of the devil. This is a bit of a ploy on Satan's part because none of this squares with apostolic teaching that warns us to be aware. He's like a lion prowling, seeking to devour and to resist the devil so that he will flee from you. Apostolic teaching is telling us to be very aware of this enemy who is out to destroy the people of God. It really has to be one of the most ingenious and satisfying ways of fighting a battle is to not have to fight at all and to get your enemy to fight themselves. Can you imagine if it's your job to defeat an enemy and you craft a scheme where your enemy turns on themselves, fights against themselves, and you don't even have to lift a finger. You don't have to fire a shot. You don't have to swing a sword. All you did was plant the seed and stir up the influence, and your enemy, and in this illustration, it's you and me, it's the church, actually fighting against ourselves, defeating ourselves, while this supposedly modest enemy hiding behind the curtain is laughing. The tragedy for us is either eliminating the devil or hiding from him or ignoring him after he's initiated all the trouble and we're just left with each other. We need to be aware. We need to be careful. And we need to remember Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Good verse to memorize. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Would to God, by his grace, we would catch ourselves as we begin to wrestle against flesh and blood. Know your enemy. Know the battle. Know, understand the nature 
So how can we recognize this enemy? And of course, not mistake each other for the enemy. Or not to mistake the lost person, the unbeliever, the person with different ideas that offend you, those people out there that you struggle with. How do we keep ourselves from causing them to be the flesh and blood enemy that we set ourselves against? The best way to do this is to look at who Satan is in the sense of what he does. So we've got four things that Satan does. First, Satan tempts. This will help us understand what is the nature of the battle that we're in. It is a fight against what is known as in the Bible, the tempter. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus entered into the wilderness to be tempted. It says that the tempter came to him, referring to Satan. The tempter, the one who seeks to test in order to find the flaw, prove wrong, someone trying to entrap and ensnare someone with the idea of causing them to sin. And of course, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and he endures these temptations, responds to these temptations, and Jesus wins. He overcomes temptation. Again, we're back to our layout of the message. Jesus won. Jesus overcame temptation. He went first. We run in after him. We all get tempted. All of us experience temptation, and they vary depending on season of life, depending on the situation. In a little book from John White called The Fight, he writes, the kinds of temptation change. Candies for kids, sensuality for the young, riches for the middle-aged, and power for the aging. The devil can ring the changes with greater skill than any advertising agency. In James chapter 1, James lays out sort of the explanation of how temptations work. In verse 14, James chapter 1, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. In other words, we're bringing something to the table here when it comes to temptation. Our own desires. We all have desires. We all have passions, things we long for, things we desire. We have desires, oftentimes desires to sin, and the tempter comes to awaken those desires. It's been a long time since I used this illustration, so hopefully it's not too familiar, but when I was in high school and I played in the various bands, I played in the concert band, and occasionally I would go over and play the timpani. Timpani, those big copper cauldrons, those kettle drums, and the heads are tuned. And so you, you, you tune them to a certain pitch that matches the song that you're playing. And sometimes you have to change the tune of the timpani in the middle of the song, and so you can't sit there and toot your pitch pipe and do your tuning because it's distracting to the music. So what you have to do then is you, is you, is you lean over that drum and you get your face right on top of that drum head and you hum the pitch into that drum and then you begin with your pedal 
adjusting the tension on that head. And when the pitch that you hum matches the vibration of the head, when they, when they come together, that whole kettle just fills up with energy and it comes at you. It's, it's kind of magical. You, you feel it more than you hear it, actually. You need to try it sometime if you haven't done it. So just hum into that drum and step on that pedal. And all of a sudden, when it lines up, when the, when the pitch lines up, it just, it just consumes you. It just comes up at you and you, and you feel it. That's fun. Temptation works just like that. You've got, you've got notes in your soul. You've got strings there. And the enemy comes and starts throwing out pitches, hums into your soul. And every so often, the pitch that he brings matches the pitch in your soul. And when those pitches line up, oh, it just fills up your soul. And it's like, oh, this is magical. Oh, this feels good. Oh, this seems so right. That nailed it. And so from our desires, we're lured, we're enticed, we've been tempted. And that's what the enemy is wanting to do. He'll keep throwing pitches at your soul constantly. And nine out of ten of them might just fall by the wayside, doesn't match up at all. But every so often, there's that one. And once he learns your pitch, once he knows what note rings your soul, he'll keep humming that pitch into your heart. Now, when we think of the devil tempting us, we usually think in terms of he's trying to get me to sin. I've got some particular sin that I'm kind of inclined towards, and he comes and tempts me, and then if I succumb to it, I commit this personal, individual, maybe in private kind of sin. And that certainly is true. That certainly is many times the case. But we need to understand, here's a little quote from Loveless again. Most commonly, temptation is directed towards larger ends, involving believers in whole ways of life or patterns of behavior which are sub-Christian, which will extinguish their spirituality and make them negative witnesses, or luring them into adopting outlooks which excuse or justify sin and which may almost totally obscure their faith. Know this, it's not just about finding a way to get you to commit that particular sin that you might have a weakness towards or an inclination towards. No, the, the devil's got much bigger plans, bigger scope in mind for that. That little part there is just a stepping stone. And what he's really after is to destroy your faith, destroy your witness, destroy the church. He's got a, he's got a big end game in mind. Destroy the people of God. Make sure God has no faithful people. That's what he's after. Crafty ways to disfigure our witness. Gain more uh, more of a, a, a case against us in order to accuse us all the more, in order to discourage us all the more, in order to weaken our faith so that we will at some point give up altogether. 
Satan deceives. Secondly, Satan, uh, Satan tempts. Secondly, Satan deceives. In Revelation 12, 9, he says his, he is the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus in John chapter 8 is talking about Satan. He says of him, he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He is the God of this world that has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He is a liar who deceives. Who wants to keep you and me and your neighbor and your co-worker in the dark? Deception always involves playing with the truth. It may be like it was from the very beginning, questioning, did God really say? You sure you got that right? I'm not sure you understand that verse the way it was meant. I don't think God really meant that. Or there's a denial of the truth altogether or a slight alteration from the truth. I'm sure that I can't convince you that it's 5 p.m. But I might convince you that it's only 10 after 11. And so I get a little bit closer to the truth. And I might have hope of deceiving you the closer I get to the truth. But still keeping you away from the truth. Folks, this helps determine how we fight. You and I have been called to enter into this fight. Here's the reality. You and I were once blind. We were. We have history in the dark. We have history being blinded by this enemy, and yet the grace of God has come into our lives and brought us into the light. So how does one who was blind, who's now come into the light, fight this battle? Scolding and accusing people who are still blind? Who was I reading recently that had sort of the funny illustration of, can you imagine blind Bartimaeus going around with a stick, beating every blind person, demanding why they don't see? Why can't you see? No. I once was blind. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And so we make our appeal to those who are still in the darkness. Come, come into the light. Hear, hear what happened to me. Hear how my life has changed. We hold fast to the truth. He's a liar. We hold to the truth. Third, Satan accuses. The Greek word for devil could be literally translated the slanderer. And in Revelation chapter 12, he is the the accuser of the brothers and the sisters who accuse them, it says, day and night before our God. Sort of his project Go to God's throne and bring as many accusations of God's people as he can. The challenge with this is, although we've been declared righteous in Christ before God, 
by the sacrifice of Christ, we're not yet made perfect, which means there's still plenty to accuse us of. There's still plenty in my life, in your life, to accuse us. Everybody's wired a little bit differently. I don't know how, how you are, but I think it's, it's fairly common to say that when we're accused, we find ourselves quite debilitated. It can really paralyze you. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that? Am, am I just kind of the hypersensitive one in the room that when I get accused, it really affects me? And a false accusation is even worse. I'm just talking about the ones that are true. You realize the position of your soul when you're under accusation. How many of you feel filled with faith, bold, ready to step forward, live for Jesus, grow in your faith when you're being accused? No, it's debilitating. It's deflating. It causes you to step back. It causes you to have reservation. It causes you to doubt yourself. It causes you to lose sight of, of who Christ is and what he's done for you. All the things, the past three weeks, all those messages, they can all get marginalized, put off to the side, forgotten when we find our souls under accusation. Do you see why justification was so important? That that's the foundation of it all. Oh, you got to understand, you're accepted in Christ, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. There's your freedom. So the accusations can have no hold, as Ryan shared with us, his and your favorite verse Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Remember that while there's much to accuse us of, our gospel rightly and justly defends us against them all. And we should be careful that you and I do not become more like the devil with one another. Finding that we are so quick and so easily ready to accuse one another and end up actually being part of his work rather than Christ's. Fourth one, Satan destroys. He tempts, he deceives, he accuses, he destroys. This is the ultimate goal. This is his end game. Destroy the crown of God's creation to thwart God. Satan doesn't like God. And his strategy is, how am I going to get at God? Well, he can't really do anything to God but he can go to the ones that God loves. He can go to the crown of his creation and he realize, realizes that if he can destroy your faith, 
He's snatched you away from the divine presence because that's how we enter into the divine presence. That's how we can know God. That's how we can be part of the family of God. By His grace, through our faith, we enter in to the family of God. And so if Satan can destroy your faith, he's got you. Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning. The name in Revelation 9 is Apollyon, which means the destroyer. I need to remind you that sin always runs a course, a one-way course to death. James 1.15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This is actually a strong deception that many of us come under often, that we think our sin is just our sin. It's just that. It's no more. And it will stay right there. But it can't. It won't. You, 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 can't, you can't deal with sin by putting a cap on it, by building a fence around it. That's, that's not the nature of sin. And it's not the work that the devil is wanting to do. I pulled out a few phrases from Cornelius Planting a Junior and Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Wonderful little book. He writes, sin is remarkably generative. Sin yields more and more sin. He says, sin is both fatal and fertile. Indeed, like cancer, sin kills because it reproduces. And of course, those of you in the medical profession or if you've experienced any kind of cancer, you know this is the motto, early detection is the key. Get at it as early as possible. Deal with it as soon as possible and put it to death when it's its smallest, when it's at its least. At some point, and it does grow, it will multiply, it will increase. That's the nature of sin. It's not different in your life than in mine. You can't change the nature of sin and how it works in the soul. It is always regenerating. As long as you leave it alive, it will always expand and reproduce itself. And it will continue to do that until... It kills you until you're destroyed. That's the end game, your destruction. Which is why the Apostle Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, he's not just seeking to trip us up. Slow us down a little bit. He starts with that. The goal is the same. I'm seeking to devour you, seeking to destroy you, 
So resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. I'll close with that. The worship team can come on up. Folks, it would be a terrible mistake for us if we lived our Christian lives unaware of this unseen battle. This is an important part of the Christian life. It's a hopeful part of the Christian life. I don't know about you, but I often feel weak and inept at winning the battle over sin in my life. But that's because (laughs) I think I'm David. Not a good David, but I'm David. And then I lose. But if I realize Christ is my David, Christ won, he went in first, he won the battle, he defeated the enemy, that changes the whole playing field, does it not? It changes our attitude, our faith, our perspective. It's meant to fill your soul with courage to fight the good fight. Jesus won so we can fight. Jesus has given you and me authority and assurance in this battle. This is an evidence of a renewed church. When you and me, when the people of God wake up and realize this fight, this cosmic battle that we're engaged in, and we're pressing into it with faith in our hearts, we can do this because he has done this. It needs to be the posture of our heart. So to conclude, four messages. People of Sovereign Grace Church in Pasadena, we should be able to say with depth of understanding, with a genuine sense of personal reality that one, I am accepted by God as righteous. Secondly, I am delivered. I have been delivered from the power of sin. Third, I am not alone. He has sent the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit to live inside of me. God is with me. And lastly, I have authority against all the evil spirits at work in the world. That is the position that being in Christ has put me and has put you. You have full assurance, full authority to run into that battle because that giant has been defeated for you by Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.